So we're in a little series called Navigating um, the Hard Questions that one encounters when reading the Bible. Um, last week, Emily, boy, it, get Emily's sermon or podcast from last week. Um, it's a really fine treatment of patriarchy, the rule of men over women as it's reflected in the Bible, how to navigate your way through that. Today, we're just taking a much easier topic, which is what's up with hell? Not to interrupt. Yep. Let's have Penny do it later. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I've been on vacation for over two weeks. It kind of shows. Penny will give her testimony later. <laughs> It'll be great. Um, so, thank you. This is, this is Blue Ocean. So, I, I am... Um, did you get the topic? Is hell? Yeah. Okay. Focus team. So... I consider myself an unrecovered uh, Jesus freak. Uh, I'm sold on Jesus as the, as the way of life I want to follow. Um, a psychologist might say that Jesus is my imaginary friend, uh, but I can't help thinking that he's real and that when I'm talking to him, I'm connecting with someone real. And my therapist, who is a Jewish man, doesn't think I'm crazy. Although I'm not sure I would keep paying him if he did think I was crazy in this matter. But part of my love for Jesus is my love for Scripture. So this is the book that shaped Jesus, and this is the book that Jesus shaped. And, and I have contact with Scripture like most days and have for many, many years. And it's like a window into an experience of God for me. So I love Scripture. Um, but the title of the series is Na Navigating Hard Questions. So, you know, when the Great Lakes freezes over and they need to make a way through, they send like the icebreaker ship in order that, you know, traffic can pass and navigate their way through. But, you know, it's like we're reading the Bible and we're doing fine and it's like, oh, wow, this is meaningful and I'm connecting and this is helpful. And then, boom, we hit like an icy patch. And if we're exploring ancient texts in any religious tradition, that would be our experience. That's what it means to explore an ancient text that's not made with our own sensibilities. Um, but this is our book. This is the book of, uh, of Jesus and his people. And none of the hard questions is easy. That's why they're called hard. <laughs> so Emily and I in this series are not like offering the definitive answer to the hard questions, but like more like bearing witness to how we uh, navigate these these questions and hopefully give you some tools for you to consider as you navigate these issues. So there are many different versions of the doctrine of hell. Uh, different churches have different like official statements. We don't. Um, and people in those churches tend to disagree about what the official statements actually mean. So it's a, just, it's a robust kind of situation, like justices of the Supreme Court, you know, have disagreements about the meaning of the Constitution. In general, though, Roman Catholics and, and Reformed Protestants, Protestants out of the Protestant Reformation of 500 years ago, have taught that some are saved, some are damned, and the damned go to hell or enter a spiritual condition of hell that involves something like eternal conscious torment. So it's kind of a tough 
tough teaching. Uh, this was actually the view of my former denomination at a national level. And when I was asked to be a national leader, I was like, I, I am a conscientious objector to that and, and a couple of other things in the statement. And the national director said, yeah, me too. And <laughs> it's like, it's no big deal. And we're not bound by it and blah, blah, blah. I later found out it was a little different than that. But so <laughs> there's, um, there's, um, there's been some really interesting research about people who hold this particular view of hell. And, and the research shows that people who hold this view, by and large, often really soften it in their application of the doctrine in their own lives and the way they think about the people around them. So like my great Aunt Mary, it's a great example of this. She came from a very conservative uh, religious tradition, Christian. And, and when Aunt Mary died, um, who wasn't her kind of Christian, and you needed to be her kind of Christian to like get saved, she'd always get them through a get saved loophole that she would open up for them. And they would be ingenious things, like in the last month I visited Maud and I, I said, God bless you, and, and she squeezed my hand, you know, even though she wasn't talking. Or I, I sent Uncle Charlie a, a card that said, Jesus love you, and I found out after he died that he was very thankful to receive that card and, and everything was okay. So my great aunt Mary's soft heart was closer to the mind of God than her hard head, as is often the case with all of us. So this version of hell, um, I would say, goes well beyond what Jesus himself taught, and that's, that's essentially my take, and here's my, here's my case, or here's my evidence for that assertion. Nearly every use of the English word hell occurs in three of four of the Gospels. So there are four Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. They're named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have virtually all of the hell sayings. John, they're absent actually in the Gospel of John. Um, they're absent in the writings of Paul, actually. Um, and just the letter of James includes a reference that the translate, translate hell. And interestingly, it's similar in tone to Jesus because James uh, may well have been like the brother of Jesus or connected to Jesus in a, in a more significant way. So the real question is, what did Jesus mean by the hell sayings? So in the Gospels, the hell sayings occur in essentially five distinct like episodes or occasions. But with repetition in three Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke often repeat the same material with little variation, it adds up to a lot of hell talk in, in the Gospels from, from the lips of Jesus. So this is not a problem that we solve by saying, oh, well, that's cranky Paul, and nice Jesus doesn't talk like that. I'm, I'm with Jesus. Um, if you study the context of those five occasions, um, something very interesting emerges. Jesus never threatens like ordinary people, like non-experts in the law or non-leaders in Israel uh, with hell. Like, never. The, the hell sayings always come in the context of, a, of like an intensifying dispute that Jesus was in with a subset of religious leaders in Israel. 
And Jesus is kind of like warning these leaders directly, or sometimes he's warning his disciples from adopting the perspective of these leaders, and they were popular leaders, and the disciples were kind of like, were like tempted. <laughs> uh, we might say they're aimed at um, religious oppressors, um, or people who claim divine authority to put unbearable burdens on, on p- other people. So to broaden our perspective even a little further, um, I would think of the hell sayings of Jesus as part of a larger prophetic tradition in Israel. And, and Jesus came in, in a, like a tradition, in a flow called the Hebrew prophets. And the prophetic in, uh, tradition in Israel was aimed often at um, Israel's oppressors. So Israel is a minority under the thumb of powerful oppressive empires and has been for most of its history. And the threats of of hell are often in that tradition uh, aimed at their oppressors, kind of as a, I think of it as like theological rage. When someone has a boot on your head and your face is in the mud and that's been your experience and your parents' experience and your grandparents' experience, you have a kind of theological rage and that, that it comes out in the prophets. And I think Jesus is kind of in that, um, in that tradition. So it's really important to understand that context when we look at the hell sayings. So, uh, you know, even saying nothing else, the reason I wouldn't vote to remove the hell sayings, not that anyone's asking me, from the, from the Gospels, that I believe the oppressed are allowed their rage, their theological rage included, and, and oppresses, oppressors need to hear their rage rather than be shielded from it. But there's an even more fundamental issue, and that's the problem of uh, translation. And often problem of translation is not significant at all, and we have quite reasonable translations of the Bible into English. We know more about the original languages than we ever did, so the, the more modern translations tend to be more accurate than early, earlier translations. We don't have like a huge translation problem when it comes to the English version of the Bible, but on the question of hell, I'd say it's very significant. So, the New Testament you know, was written in uh, the common Greek of the time, uh, which is kind of like the closest thing to a universal language in that region. It was not written in English. Um, and hell is a word in English that is used to translate um, two Greek words. So actually, if you, if you want to keep track of this, what I'd suggest to do on your notes, if you have a, a pen or on the back of the thing, write the word hell, then write the word Hades. H-A-D-E-S, put a forward slash next to Hades and write the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. So you've got hell on the top line, beneath that you've got Hades, forward slash Sheol. And then um, another word that you're not going to know how to spell immediately, I'll tell you Gehenna, it's actually pronounced Gehenna, but it's G-E-H. E-N-N-A. These are the words we're dealing with here, and that'll help you keep, keep track of it if you're keep track of it kind of person. Um, so um, the first word I want to look at is this, that is translated in the English translations, hell, um, is the word in Greek, Hades. And the other one that I want to look at is Gehenna. 
Listen to what one uh, really good um, Greek scholar who's translated the New Testament, I have a copy of it here, his name is David Bentley Hart, says about this translation problem. He says, in the New Testament, there is no single Greek word corresponding to the English word hell, despite its frequent use in English translations. And there is no Greek term, the original language of the New Testament, that corresponds to the picture of hell as a kingdom of ingenious tortures ruled by Satan that took shape many centuries after the New Testament was written. Are you, are you, are you following the, the logic there? So the Greek term Hades is similar to the Hebrew Sheol. That's why I had you put Hades next to Sheol. Sheol is the language of the Old Testament, of the Older Testament. It's Hebrew, and there are very similar pictures or understandings, and they essentially mean like the realm of the dead. Righteous, wicked, unrighteous, just the realm of the dead. Hades, the realm of the dead. That's one of the mo more frequent um, words in Greek that is translated hell in the, in the English. Um, you know, the Jewish people really didn't have a, a well-defined uh, view of the afterlife, especially in, in its earlier history. And, but it was naturally assumed that the, the dead were like somewhere. <laughs> and it was thought to be like some like region, nether region that was somehow vaguely underground. Um, but but Hades and Sheol were like a Sheol were like a dreamlike place, and, and the inhabitants of Sheol were considered to be shades. I, I noticed after my um, mother-in-law, my first mother-in-law died. She died suddenly at the age of 54. It was a real shock to our system, and I noticed for like about a year, every now and again, I'd have a, a dream of Dolores. And she'd be alive, but dead, but not really alive. And it was like troubling and disturbing, but, but she was there. That's actually a common phenomenon that people have after, especially after someone dies uh, suddenly. I had, that, I had that later with another sudden death that I experienced. And not that I experienced, but that happened to someone else. And I experienced the after effects of it. Um, so that's how I think of like the, where the whole idea of Hades or Sheol kind of corresponds to our uh, natural human experience. Um, the other word is Gehenna. So we've looked at Hades and Sheol. Now we're looking at Gehenna, a Greek word for a Hebrew term. So hang in there. Gehenna refers to a real place at the time of the writing of the New Testament that was just outside the old city of Jerusalem, um, and it was essentially a garbage dump. Um, so it wasn't, it was like a place that people knew about Gehenna. Um, by legend, there's no real evidence for this, but by legend, this Gehenna place was once used for child sacrifices. So there was kind of an aura over this place, Gehenna, this garbage dump. And like all garbage dumps of that time that aren't like tended with modern, you know, landfill techniques, um, there was always something burning. There was always something smoldering in the garbage dump, and that's connected to the fires that don't go out that are sometimes mentioned in these hell sayings. So when Jesus refers to Gehenna, and it's translated hell in the Gospels, he's really employing it like a 
like a prophetic metaphor. It's a vivid word picture that everyone would have gotten. And he's engaging in what you might call prophetic rhetoric. Um, a typical example of this is in Matthew 23, verse 14. This is in a diatribe. He's, he's like getting it down with some leaders that he's in, in kind of a pretty fierce verbal contact with. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land to make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And in the newer translations, there's always a little footnote over hell. And then at the bottom, it says, Gehenna. So, what I'm saying is it's, it's really a, quite a long way from realm of the dead, or Gehenna, referring to a garbage dump, to hell as a place or state of unending conscious the later doctrinal formulation that's very common. And it's, I, it's a trip we don't have to take. I mean, moving from that understanding of Jesus in the Gospels to this later developed understanding, I, I think it's a trip that you don't, as a Jesus follower, have to take. I don't take that trip. So where did this idea of hell as a place where the damned experience eternal conscious torment come from? Uh, well, I think people would say it largely comes from the writings of an Italian poet whose first name was Dante, and he wrote a trilogy in the, what would be like the uh, 14th century, 1300s, um, called The Divine Comedy. And the first book of the trilogy is called The Inferno. And in The Inferno, a man called Dante <laughs> is guided by the poet Virgil from a much earlier era through a tour of the seven descending circles of hell that get worse and worse and like worse and worse criminals are in the descending circles of hell and it's in the in the um, inferno it's conceived of as like starts on the ground then it gets lower and lower and that's where all the like imaginative pictures that we have of hell seem to come from they come from Dante or at least they were very much popularized by Dante so Dante was influenced by the uh, towering theologian of the church who preceded him named Thomas Aquinas. Um, there are Catholic schools named Aquinas, if you're familiar with that term. That's named after Thomas Aquinas, one of the great doctors of the Western church tradition. Uh, Aquinas' uh, writings, just to give you a gist, um, amount to, they think, something like 10 million words. That's without a word processor. Um, there's a lot of rich theology in Aquinas, um, but he had some—he had some pretty bonehead ideas. I mean, <laughs> uh, um, he taught that same-gender sex was worse than incest. Um, so we wouldn't let Aquinas speak here without a conversation uh, and some dialogue about historical context of terms and whatnot. And, um, uh, but he had a mystical experience toward the end of his life, and he said, everything I've written so far is just like, it's just like straw compared to this experience. So I'm sure he's much more enlightened than all of us right now. 
Um, Dante is, is, is kind of offering a literary vision of what today would be like a video game. I think it is a video game, right? Inferno. It's got to be a video game based on Dante's Inferno. So this thing has legs. Dante has legs in popular culture. I'm sure there are bands that are, you know, like death metal bands that are named Inferno or, you know, uh, have their names coming from Dante's Inferno, etc. And, and, um, it's really hard to know what Rabbi Paul and Rabbi Jesus would make if they read Dante's Inferno. They'd probably be like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> what was he on? <laughs> it's like, wow, things have developed. What an imagination. Um, so in other words, we can't ascribe to Jesus all the baggage that has been added to the English word hell, which is you know, vastly embellished by this Italian poet of the 1300s. Um, but so... But there was a reason for this. People care about these things. And these things just don't come out of the blue in order to be like, let's be hard on people, though there's a little of that. Um, what's, what's going on with the doctrine of hell? What are people trying to, what good are they trying to um, reinforce with a doctrine like hell? And I would say it's like the certainty of accountability. This idea like, well, what we do matters. And what we do has consequences, and we have dignity as moral agents, and, and our moral sense comes from, like, the mind behind the universe. And, and we're going to have to answer, in some sense, we're accountable in some sense for the way we live our lives. I believe we are all accountable to God. And that we will answer to God for our lives. There will be a kind of a, a reckoning. Um, what that accounting will look like is, is, is largely speculative. I, I picture it more as a time of tears than a time of terror. Um, so a while back, I, I, I met a man I had served as a pastor many, many years ago. And we had lost connection and we were just reconnecting for, for coffee. He had moved away and since I'd known him and come back. and um, We'd baptized him in the church I was pastoring back then. Um, we were his first church. Um, I think he was in his 40s at the time. And after his initial connection to our church, he moved uh, far away. And he got in, involved in a church that was, seemed a lot like the church I pastored at that time. Um, and it turns out he was a closeted gay man at the time that he was baptized. Um, he didn't share that with me as his pastor, and I totally understand why. Um, because our church is not a safe place for, for gay people. Um, and then he is telling me his story, and it's a, oh, it's a story I have heard too many times of you know, finding this great church in, in this other city and falling in love with, with the people. And by that time, he was an openly out gay man. And he presents himself to the church as that's, that's who I am. And he's told, oh, you're, you're welcome. And the arms embrace go wide open and, and, and they encircle him as a great church. There are these great churches that are just, they're, they're just great if you're straight. 
And he gets deeply involved in the church community. He's got a great experience. It enhances his understanding, experience of God. This goes on for some lengthy period of time until it doesn't. And push comes to shove in the power structure. And the really hidden policies eventually manifest. And they, these policies are used against him. And it's, it's really, it's, there's no other word for it but brutal. It is a form of psychological torture. There's a loss of his dearest friends. There's a loss of his community. His, his faith is like shaken to the, to the core. And now, several years later, he's back talking with me, exploring the possibility of connecting to um, Blue Ocean, having heard of our story and all that. And as he's telling me his story, you know, at first in my mind, I'm like, oh, those bad churches that do that stuff. And then I realized I was his first pastor. <laughs> Um, and being someone's first pastor is a position of great responsibility and, and great privilege. And I was that guy's first pastor. And when he met me when he was in his 40s, I hadn't done my homework on this question, even though it was a question that deeply affected many human beings, many sheep in the flock, so to speak. And I was just like doing the lazy thing of like, going along with the party line. And, and I realized, oh my gosh, my inattention to what the Bible is and isn't saying here um, deeply affected this child of God. And he didn't get from me anything near what he needed from a pastor at the time. He's, he's not putting this on me. He's not saying, oh man, you know. He's, he's like, oh, I'm just glad we're blah, blah, blah. The Spirit is kind of kind of working on me while I'm talking to him. And I said to him, you know, I am so sorry. I didn't get there sooner for you. Uh, I am so sorry. And why did I say that? I said it because I felt just in my gut that like we're accountable for our actions and that we're accountable to one another and when you're in the 12 steps and you're working out your 12 sick your sixth step and you're talking to people that you've injured and you're you're doing the work of God and it's connected to this notion of accountability what we do, do matters and there's a God who cares about all this stuff and you know when I said that he, he just he smiled he said I know and then he said thanks for saying that you know, like, uh, that was his code for saying, actually, I probably needed to, to hear that from you. So, like, in that moment, that to me, that was a sacred moment in the coffee shop. And that, that was where there was, like, a little mend in the, um, in the torn fabric of love that, like, holds the universe together. And that, to me, is what it feels like to be accountable to God. Uh, to, to answer to the God who is love. It's a matter of tears often more than terror. So I want to uh, shift. That was it. That's about all you're going to get from me on this topic. Um, I want to shift to our time of, um, of reflection. And I, I want to um, propose for our time of reflection, uh, we take like a couple, three minutes. So this is just my like verbal preparation of it for you. So we'll get to it. Just, just hang in there. Um, 
I want to propose a healing text, especially for those of you who maybe have been personally affected by this very common doctrine of hell um, as this place of never-ending uh, conscious torment. Um, and um, I, uh, I didn't grow up with that doctrine, really, in my Episcopal upbringing. Um, and, but I know some of you have, and, and it, it's, it, it can do a number on your, on your psyche. So this text is in a, in a letter called 1 John. So it's in the letters part of the New Testament. It's like close to the very end of the Bible. comes after the Gospels. Um, and this letter <clears throat> from someone known as John may be connected in some way to the John of the Gospels, or we're not really sure. Um, the letter itself as a whole is concerned with helping the early Jesus movement um, people to... Um, they're in a context that is confused by many competing visions of Jesus. Jesus has been a big phenomenon, and so like people want to own him and grab him and use him and ride him to this thing or that thing or put their agendas on him. And all, all, nothing new under the sun that was going on back then. And John is writing in that kind of a, of a situation, and he's trying to give them some, like, some tools to like, how do we discern like, which Jesus is the real Jesus? And he's got a, uh, there's a line in uh, chapter four, and I'm using this translation, it's very close to the, to the Greek. Um, in love there is no fear, in love there is no fear, rather the love that is perfect casts out fear or removes fear because fear carries chastisement or punishment. And whoever fears has not been completed or perfected or grown into the fullness of love. In love there is no fear, rather the love that is perfect casts out fear. So like, how would you, um, how would perfect love cast fear out of you, you know? <laughs> Like usually when people are dealing with your fears, it's a little bit like <laughs> unnerving, like don't go there, don't, lo that's a raw, you, how would perfect love cast out your fear? Well, if it's perfect love, it would be in a perfectly loving way, perfectly suited to you, right? Or else it wouldn't be perfect love. Such that afterwards you would say, wow, that was amazing, thank you. <laughs> I feel better, I needed that. And fear, you know, fear, man, Shevitz, fear is so deeply embedded in, like, the human psyche. I mean, it's, like, absolutely essential for our survival that we have this crazy overactive alarm system so that we're constantly on the alert and look out for possible threats. And that needs to be really working well for us to survive as a species. And so, man, this is a big part of what it means to be human is to deal with a lot of fear and anxiety and worry in all its various forms. It's so deeply embedded in all of us that this it, has got to be a lifelong process and possibly one that extends beyond the grave, to have all your fear just like removed from you. Um, which I think is quite possible since perfect love is perfectly patient. So I want to suggest that we take some time, first of all, um, to let a picture that represents this kind of love to you um, kind of form in your mind. 
Um, a love that drives out fear, but does so in a perfectly loving way that's perfectly suited to you. So I'm not going to paint that picture for you. You're, we're going to, in a moment, we'll start, and you'll, you'll go ahead and just let that come to you. So it, it could be a picture of love as like a, a really wise old woman sitting in a room, and you know, you can get an appointment to see this woman like for an hour, and she's amazing. And you can just sit with that woman and you can like tell her your fears, or you could just feel your fears and being with her would just have this calming effect on you. Or maybe she'd be like the kind of woman, the old woman, she'd reach over and put her hand on your hand and say, dear, dear, dearie, it's going to be fine. And you'd believe it, you know, that kind of a picture might be one. You could picture um, this kind of love more like a, say like a, a big patch of fog um, where it, at the periphery it's kind of light fog at first and then it gets thicker and thicker as you enter into it. And as you enter that fog, you might imagine first your like surface fears that aren't too distressing to you are left behind and then as you go deeper into the thicker fog, you know, more deeply embedded fears get kind of, and you, but you only, you go at your own pace and you go when you're ready and it's that kind of a picture. Um, you could picture this perfect love that casts out fear like it's muse, the most beautiful music playing, but it's like at a distance and you feel drawn to it and so you start making a journey toward the source of the music and as you do it gets you know, more and more clear, louder and louder and, and again the same process is happening as you get closer. First your like surface fears kind of fall off and then your deeper fears, whatever. You may have some other picture that may pop into your mind. So we'll just take a time now and I just invite you to relax, take a deep breath to get, to get relaxed, be um, in a good position in your chair there. And then maybe every 30 seconds or so I'll just repeat that verse and uh, we'll take a couple of minutes and you let whatever picture comes to your mind uh, emerge and uh, go with it. In love there is no fear, rather the love that is perfect removes fear. Again, in love there is no fear, rather the love that is perfect removes it. Again, in love there is no fear. Rather, the love that is perfect carries it away from us.
And now just to conclude, in love there is no fear, rather the love that is perfect casts it out. Amen.